Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I found myself increasingly drawn to the merits or otherwise of industrial policy in recent months. In fact, I did my early industrial reporting on the Financial Times when Margaret Thatcher was at her most powerful, and Keith Joseph, the intellectual giant in her government. Their belief was that the best industrial policy was not to have one at all. They'd come to power in the wake of the Wilson and Callaghan Labour governments, which believed the very opposite. Labour struggled manfully to save the British motor industry, I remember. In fact, my FT editor, uh, Sir Geoffrey Owen, had left the paper a few years earlier to go back and work at British Leyland uh, before returning to the newspaper. The Department of Trade, Industry and Competition Minister, Brian Patel, do with industrial policy now reminds me of Labour back in power in the UK in the 1960s and 1970s. He's about to designate 42 sectors for special protection. And what is astonishing is that he seems to have won the support of what I would normally regard as rational business leaders to do so. We seem to be creating a version or a form of siege economy. And so I'm pleased to have a real live industrialist with me today. Nick Steen is a consultant, comes out of the textile business, which is a Patel favorite. And I know he has some strong views about what is happening out there in industrial parks far away from the leafy, leafy suburbs in our major cities. Nick, thanks for joining me today. You were MD of Sheraton Textiles, which makes uh, household household textiles, sheets, uh, linen, bedding. I'm not sure whether you did curtains and carpets. And you were there back in 2008 when the Industrial Development Corporation came in uh, in a form of rescue, I suppose, um, pumping in fresh cash. Was that a good time to be in the business? You know, I don't think there's been a good time to be in the business of the in the textile business anyway since about 1995. Um, it's ever since we opened up, uh, it's really been a, a business that struggled to find its feet and largely won uh, with significant amounts of decay. And and the opening the opening up was that a this is this is this is the new South Africa opening up to international trade, I presume, and, and allowing and dropping duties and allowing imports and presumably looking for export markets. That That's correct. I mean, what, once we moved 1995 into this open world, we suddenly had a lot of businesses that were used to dealing in, in a very closed apartheid environment and now had to meet the realities of, of a real and very strongly competitive world. Why do so many people regard that opening up Nick, as a sort of historical mistake, I've watched and read um, uh, economists in, say, the steel industry at uh, CIFSA um, uh, write about it as if it was such an obvious error um, for the ANC to have to have done. But that surely can't be right. I, I don't. I don't actually think it was necessarily an error. I, there was no doubt there were areas that could have been better managed in in terms of the open up. But, but I think what you're seeing is that a lot of the businesses uh, that struggled immediately cried this was the problem. In fact, largely it wasn't the problem. A lot of it lay with the businesses themselves. They hadn't adapted business plans. They were very poor at, at re-strategizing and re-looking at their businesses and trying to fit into what was a more modern world. They were living in a world that actually largely didn't exist anymore. And and the this is what's so interesting because... What is what has happened? What has increasingly seemed to happen um, uh, with BEE in order to make B, BEE companies 
successful. Um, the ANC seems to have increasingly, and via its ministers of trade and industry and now competition, um, tried to find ways to protect them from those early decisions decisions to open to open up. And we've become, and we are particularly now, and I'd be interested to know what you think about it, um, we, be, we you know we're sort of drawing up the putting up the drawbridge in a way. Um, are we are we are we turning our back on the world again? Well, I, I think the first thing that we've got from a from a governmental perspective is that the the original belief or, or the primary belief seemed to be that that it was a lack of money. So if we threw money at things, that got it right. And I think the realization has come that 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 money alone is not going to not going to solve the problem, but it, but what we're not prepared to face up to is the fact that we've got to make significant changes. And what we do not want to do in this country, and, and it's largely because the, the unions have a, a very significant uh, say. I mean, the minister's got a background in, in, uh, in the union. They don't want to change what's, or, or lose some of what's happened in the past to make changes for the future. And unfortunately, when you change a business, you have to shed some of the past to to give your space to go forward, and we don't want to do that, you know. And and that therein lies the problem. Uh, it's you know it's very interesting. Uh, we don't have significant economies of scale in in, in this environment, um, and yet we still want to take on the China's. I mean, iron and steel is an example. I mean, you've written about that. The reality is we've got. A, a very deficient electricity supply. We've got a number of other problems that don't make us ideal to make iron and steel, but we'll rather, because obviously the big players want it, we'd rather try and restrict the imports than face the fact that we probably shouldn't be a primary producer of, of, of iron and steel. Rather import what China's doing cheaper and create the secondary industries behind that, but that's not the way we go in this country. It certainly isn't. It? It's just... Just fascinates me. I mean, there is an oversupply. So we make we make in South Africa roughly five million tons of. We have the capacity to make around five million tons of steel a year. Just to talk about steel for a moment, there is an there is an, an international surplus at any one time of about four hundred million tons of steel, um, which is available for purchase by almost anybody and for not very very high prices. And as you say, you know we've got quite a we've got quite an active. Um, uh, what's the word? Fabricating industry, I suppose, or stockholding industry, where we could buy raw steel from almost anywhere. It doesn't have to even have to be China, um, and shape it and bend it and cut it and do all of the things that add value to steel um, without the, with, you know, without having to shoulder and look after um, AMSA, which is really must be one of the most inefficient steel makers in the world now, and and part of an international group. That is absolutely no interest in seeing our local company be any more competitive than the rest of its the rest of its um, steel making empire. Well, the thing is that you know whether it's efficient or inefficient. If you look at it cold bloodedly and say, would you now get into making iron and steel in this country, given electricity supply problems, and we know that it's an absolute guzzler of power. Yeah. Uh, given what's happening at ESCOM? The answer is no. Um, why did, was it there? It was there because in the apartheid days, we had a closed economy. We needed to be able to be sure we could get iron and steel. And so we created this animal. But the animal does, doesn't have a place in the world. It's a dinosaur, and we need to learn to shed the dinosaurs. But, of course, 
the dinosaurs are not going to go down without a fight. And that's when you say that you're a little bit surprised some of the captains of industry are busy uh, agreeing with, with, with the minister. Of course they are, because the dinosaur does not want to, uh, to become fossilized. No, well, of course, these are now all of these. So he has these 42 sectors that he's setting up to designate. And we can talk about designation in a minute. Um, and each of them has a private sector champion. And there's some pretty surprising names on that on that list, which I've had a glance at. Um, and we'll know about them when they're published in the next couple the next couple of days. Just tell me something, Nick, before we go on about Patel. What is it like running? I mean, if you're in charge of, let's go back to Sheraton, you're in real trouble, IDC comes in. What's it like running a, a, a failing business? Well, I, I think what has happened, um, and increasingly... Uh, probably as a result of, of things like state capture, and that is that businesses have become absolutely bureaucratic and, 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 and mired in, in difficulty. If you compare, and I, I'll go back to the textile yeah. industry, textile industries internationally are run of family-owned businesses. This is true throughout the world. Yeah. Uh, and they're quick and they're fleet-footed. You, that just does not work in, 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 in a government situation in this country and we've got so many rules that uh, that you know how you have to buy this where you have to buy it how many committees you've got to go through that in the end the entrepreneurial spirit or the entrepreneurial capability of management uh, is, is is totally uh, is, is totally lost and we saw that with with uh, with one of the CEOs of SAA who eventually said he couldn't deal with us you know he couldn't yeah. he couldn't affect the turnaround simply because he didn't have the freedom to, to act. And, and, and Mark Barnes is similar. Mark Barnes was similar in the post office. Yes, he was. You made a fairly, well, a wickedly funny comment on an article I wrote uh, recently about Brian Patel and his protectionist impulses. You said, and you might have been talking about the textile industry, that he was saving jobs that shouldn't exist in companies that will never be profitable. What, do you, what did you mean by that? Well, this is this is certainly true um, of of large parts of the textile industry. Where I mean, what is what has happened is that the IDC has become a piggy bank uh, for saving many of these distressed companies, and huge amounts of money are being thrown at companies uh, that will never be recovered, and the companies that will never be profitable because strategically they don't have. A reason to exist in this country, um, and and that's a very very sad thing. So we're busy throwing this money at those sort of companies instead of redirecting the money to areas where in fact we could grow businesses. But the rationale, of course, is that we're not prepared to lose any of the jobs of the existing businesses, uh, but we want all the jobs from the new businesses, and and it just doesn't work like that, you know. So so the IDC, I mean, if you go and look at it. Uh, has swung from a profit to a loss. It's got horrible bad debt ratios, and it's backing continually a whole lot of losers. Now, I don't believe that management of the IDC are so poor uh, relative to the rest of the banking sector, but I do feel that they're probably pressurized into doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing. No, there's, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, they do what they are told. Um, but just come back to come come back to textiles in particular. We don't. Do we have a, any sort of a future in textiles? I mean, we're not. You know, we don't. We don't. Um, we're not a big wool producer. We don't. Uh, as far as I know, we don't grow any cotton. So presumably, 
most of our inputs we have to import. So, so you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Do we have a future? The answer is yes, we do have a future. Do we have a future in the primary area, which is the, um, the spinning of, of yarns, the weaving? No. I mean, we, we've had some absolutely world-class weaving setups here that will maybe do 100 meters or, or 100,000 meters. Whereas in China, they're doing millions and millions of meetings. There are economies of scale. And I mean, to put it in, in context, I mean, we, I think we, we probably produce, we do produce cotton. We probably produce about 300,000 bales here. Whereas you're talking uh, five to seven million bales in China, similar in India. I, I mean, we just don't have the raw material base to be in that, but we're desperately trying to stay in it because again, if we go back to the apartheid era, we had those industries to, to protect ourselves, and the union is very strong. Obviously, that's the union Patel came out of. We're not prepared to shed any of those. So the policy is mired in the fact that we can't do away with any of the past to do the future. If you come back to, is there a future? Yes, there is, because fast fashion has become very much the buzzword, and you want to be able to get it, things done quickly and close to source. So the sewing, which is actually where the labor lies uh, of of garments, for example, can very well be done in this country, but the fabric should be imported and there shouldn't be a duty on the fabric. There's just been a, a big uh, uh, thing come out of the of ITAC where they've done away with the, the duties on imported fabrics, but only if they continue, if the retailers continue to support the local manufacturers. So there's always this give and take that you get in, as you see in the competition commission, where we, we give with one hand, but we want to take back more with the other hand, you know, and, that, yes, and that's I, the reality. As I understand it, you, you, can, you, can import, you can import fabric into South Africa, but you can't export the finished goods. You've got to sell them locally. So, you, well, it, it, it's more convoluted than that because you can, uh, you can import the fabrics free of duty as long as it uh, aligns to an order from a recognized or, or, or retailer that's part of the, of the show, as it were. Yeah. So obviously those retailers that are part of the show are very happy with this, but the retailers that don't happen to belong to this, this little group, they cannot get uh, fabrics uh, un under rebate, and therefore they're disadvantaged. Um, online retailers, for example, are something that we – we uh, we hold in abhorrence in this country, um, which which is sad because the online retailer is the gateway for small business to to get into the market. But of course, big business doesn't particularly like that. So there's a there's a there's a there's a kind of a there's a, um, a meeting of minds, or if not minds, certainly of interests between big business, big government, and big unions. Absolutely. I mean, if, if you look at any of the master, well, the one, the master plans that I've looked at, yeah. uh, you talked about who the champions were of these various sectors. And you inevitably find that there are large businesses in those sectors because small businesses just do not have the time to sit in, in these talk shows. Uh, they, they, they can't do it. So, uh, yes, they have uh, a vested interest. And you'll find that none of these master plans, that certainly the ones I've seen, make any provision for the creation of small and, and uh, entrepreneurial businesses. And yet we hear uh, President Ramaphosa saying that is the future for employment. So I don't know how the two meet. He does, uh, you're right. I mean, they don't, I've read a couple of them now and none of them do. Um, and the other thing that's missing from all of them, except the motor industry, the automotive one, um, which, was, which was done under Rob Davis, is 
any real concentration or reference or effort on exports. So we are not we are not trying to grow. We're not trying to become an export in in industrial economy. I mean, we're not making things to sell to other people. Uh, we seem to regard our domestic market as big enough to absorb everything we can make, which has got to be just the most stupid. I, I, I don't think I don't think the case is necessary that we that we don't want to export. I think we have to be realistic about what we can export. I mean, for example, if we go back to the textile industry, can you bring fabrics to South Africa, the tip of the world, make something up and then sell it into Europe when the Chinese have got the fabric there, can make it up and send it into Europe much quicker? Or even if you do buy, uh, let's take, for example, would you take a fabric into into uh, South Africa, make up and send to Zara in Spain, or would you rather make it in Morocco, which is just across the border and is much quicker and they speak the same language and the buyers can traverse uh, very quickly to see their suppliers? So we, we, we're very far away from the, the, the large markets, and our problem is that we don't have ourselves a particularly large market. Um, well, so, thing. so we seem to be copying. I mean, we we are, we've sort of seem to have convinced ourselves that our models, which are China and South Korea, whatever they might have been back in the day, um, which had massive internal markets, we we those are these seem to be the models that we are trying to copy, and we don't have the internal market to do for us what their their markets did for them. You're hundred percent right. I, I mean, we we. we we continually choose the wrong models. I mean, the, the right models for us to be choosing are the, a lot of the places that have come out from being Iron Curtain countries, places like Poland, for example. You know, again, small markets, yes, they do have the benefit of, of EU on their doorstep, but they've learned to be quick and they've learned to, to, to do things differently. We, we are not trying to do anything different to, to, to our, our, our strategies. Uh, we, we just simply try to follow, as you say, what has happened in Europe? What has happened in the United States? Uh, what has happened in China? And that's not the right model. You're 100% right with that. Presumably, when businesses come out of the, the pandemic, they are not going to come out throwing cash all over all over the place. They're going to be as stingy as hell. They're going to be looking after cash flows. They're going to be really, really mean and lean. Um the government, on the other hand, seems to expect an explosion of job creation um, once we're all vaccinated and once the world is free. Where do you? What's what's your prognosis? I mean, what is your what is your job I think growth? The, the, the uh, problem we've got uh, with all of this is that that we we can talk as much as we want about job growth. We can talk about as much as we want about building businesses, but if the fundamental building blocks are not there. We can talk about things like education. We can talk about things like power. We can talk about the fact that our ports are, rate, are the rated two of the last three in the world in, te in terms of those that have reasonable con container capabilities. Until we get, we can look at our transport systems, until we get those things right, um, how do we compete against places uh, like a China, if you want to talk about a China, or like a Poland, or wherever it is, you know. And yet, there seems to be a lack of of will to to look at those things. I, I mean, I, I've got a feel, in a way, for Minister Patel. It's all very well, even if he was putting the right policies. There's not the right feeders going in, you know. It's no good having that, and then and then the trains don't 
uh, don't arrive on time. I, I, I remember quite vividly taking uh, one of my staff to China. Uh, um, he, he was basically a mechanic. And we sat at the station uh, in, in Shanghai where they had the underground. And as we got down there, the train pulled out. And he was shattered. And I explained to him, no, the next one is going to be coming in three minutes' time. And, and he couldn't believe it because if he missed the train in Cape Town, there's no more trains. Yeah. And he doesn't get to work and he has to walk to work. And it's those sort of things. You know, until we fix those basics, we're going to struggle. But I, this is the thing, Nick, that, that's really worrying me. I mean, can those basic things be fixed? There was an article this weekend in Saka Report, their business section, and it was about Clover closing it, the country's biggest, I didn't know about it, the biggest cheese factory in South Africa, in Lichtenberg, is shutting down, being shut down by Clover because the municipality has collapsed. It can't supply water. It can't supply electricity. And so they're moving the entire factory to Durban, I think. Um, how do you fix a Lichtenberg? How do you fix an Arducho or a Butterworth? I mean, they've gone. They've gone. Well, I, the, the one thing in life is that nothing is ever gone and nothing ever uh, it, it gets as bad as you think it will be. But there's, you, where you're right, there has to be a political will to do so. Um, and hopefully what we will see coming out of all of these revelations is the realization that you cannot have the SCADA deployment stra strategy uh, where actually your political affiliation counts over and above everything else. You know, there's got to be the ability to do the job for the people and do it right. Uh, so, yes, uh, there is a lot broken. Um, but, you know, we, we can either throw up our hands and say that's it or we get down and start fixing it. Um, the government has to recognize its role as a facilitator and start for doing the facilitation. But, but the other thing, Peter, that, that we've got to look at, um, and I, I've alluded to this, we need to look at solutions that are innovative. You know, if you say education is broken, and it is broken, how we have a dearth of really good teachers, how do we deal with that in an environment? Well, we've seen online teaching come in. Online teaching allows access of a very highly uh, qualified or, or, or really good teacher to a wide audience through through the media. So how do we deal with that? Let's look at a strategy. Let's not try and take the British education system and put it into South Africa and think that's going to work because it's not, because the infrastructure levels are very different. So we've got to have innovative ways of doing things. And, and we just don't think innovatively in this country. And the sad thing that we've got, uh, and, and it's a government thing that if you don't uh, the government doesn't employ or, or doesn't look to people that criticize. It's one thing I always used to like about, about President Obama. He used to hire a lot of people around him that basically asked the difficult questions because that kept him on his toes. We don't do that if we're a minister. We'll rather hire, hire one of our uh, chaps from the, from the union to be our advisor than somebody who's going to ask difficult questions. You worked a lot with Ibrahim Patel at... Um at Sher when you were at Sheraton. And I, I've got a news story in front of me from back in 2016 where he visits your factory and you take him around. He has got many good qualities, does Ibrahim, uh, uh, and he, he's a very determined man. Is he the right person to, to you know, to be I, I think, to I think his, heart, yeah, his heart is in the right place, and I think there's no question about that. But it's, I think it's very difficult for a person 
that has a, a very strong union bias to represent industry. And, and the Department of Trade and Industry, from its name, is there to represent industry, and the Department of Labor is there to represent labor. But we've got this crossover mismatch, and that doesn't work. There's, there's no, I mean, the one thing with Patel, he's as honest as the day is long, he's as passionate, he's very hardworking, but my sense is he has no trust of industry. In fact, government doesn't trust the private sector. Um, and, and, and if you don't have that trust, you continue to going to have a problem. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes wonder how we would, you know, I'm willing to put money on us um, not producing a vaccine in this country for the next 10 years. Um, Nick, um, uh, very last question. Are we pulling the drawbridge up or is this just a kind of a, a moment? You know, does it pass? Does it, uh, does it quickly not work and do we adjust? I think there is an attempt to, to, uh, to roll back to the past, sadly. It's not going to work. Um, unfortunately, it's going to take a bit of time for it to realize that because in, in the, all of these master plans, there are massive promises made. And we've seen promises from government and we've got used to them never being met. And I'm afraid with the master plan, they're equally largely not going to be met. Now we'd have the one thing we can blame, which is COVID. But until we see failure, we're not going to turn around and start looking to doing things differently. So I think we're going to have to go through a little bit of, of that period of, uh, of seeing things not work before before they start to work. It doesn't mean there won't be incremental improvements in some areas. There obviously will be, but so much more uh, could be done and so much quicker if we were prepared to to grasp the nettle and and uh, and take some some level of of, entre of entrepreneurial risk or, or look at things differently. Thank you very much. I can't thank you, in fact, Nick, enough for joining me today, and I hope we can catch up again. And to people listening to podcasts from the edge, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Keep listening and I'll do my best to keep bringing interesting things to talk about and smart people to do the talking. Remember, the podcast is available on the Financial Mail website and the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms as well. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.